You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattonbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Turkle. Thanks for listening. To write about Tony Wilson, a.k.a. Anthony H. Wilson, is to write about a number of public and private characters and personalities, a clique of unreliable narrators, constantly changing shape and form. At the helm of Factory Records and the Hacienda Nightclub, Wilson unleashed landmark acts such as Joy Division and New Order onto the world as he pursued myriad other creative endeavors, appointing himself a custodian of Manchester's legacy of innovation and change. To writer, broadcaster, and cultural critic Paul Morley, he was this and much more. Bullshitting hustler, flashy showman, mean factory boss, self-deprecating chancer, intellectual celebrity, loyal friend, shrewd mentor, and insatiable publicity seeker. It was Morley to whom Wilson left a daunting final request to write this book. From Manchester with Love, published by Faber and Faber, is a biography of a man who became one with his hometown of Manchester, England. The music he championed and the myths he made of love and hate, life and death. In the cultural theater of Manchester, Tony Wilson broke in and took center stage. Morley has written about music, art and entertainment since the 1970s. He wrote for the New Musical Express from 1976 to 1983. A founding member of the Art of Noise and a member of the staff of the Royal Academy of Music, he collaborated with Grace Jones on her memoirs and is the author of a number of books about music, including The Age of Bowie, his history of classical music, A Sound Mind, and a biography of Bob Dylan, You Lose Yourself, You Reappear. Our man in London, Dermot McPartland, fills in for interviewing duties this episode and helps Morley unpack the many minds and lives of Tony Wilson. Here's Dermot's conversation with Paul Morley. So I know and I've met some of the characters who are in the book. Unfortunately, I never saw or met Tony Wilson, but I feel very familiar with him. Um, I guess, um, was it hard for you to do it, given that you're in it? Um, No, I, I, I think actually I'm probably in all my books. Um, whether they're about um, me or not. So um, that that was natural. I mean, that's a complaint that some people might have indeed, but having been mentored by Tony Wilson in many ways, that's an inevitability. Um, I, 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 you know, you're in the story, but you're, you're, you're in the story, you know, by accident in a funny sort of way. I would find myself sometimes writing the book, realizing I would I would have to talk about myself. I, I, in many ways, I pulled back. Actually, I think there's mm. a, another version that probably takes forty hours to listen to, where I'm in it a bit more. But uh, I think uh, uh, you, you, there were occasions where I had to be in it because I was in the story. Uh, but I didn't go out of my way to to brag about being there. I just happened to be there. He takes you to see Ian's body without probably without the consent of the Curtis family. 
And I guess you're like 21, 22, and he shows you the body and he, he kind of says to you, he assigns you the task and he says, Paul, you need to see this because you're going to write the story. You're going to write the book. Yes, it was no. an incredible moment because it's been emblazoned in my mind ever since. And mm. I'd only known him a, a little while. And um, I didn't even know really what book he was talking about. Um, and, and we must remember now that Joy Division, et cetera, is really much better known. At that time, of course, as much as we were trying to make it different, they were quite an obscure band in a way. Mm. I think the first album was only selling a few thousand copies. So it wasn't sort of inevitable. And of course, that was the way Tony worked. He would sort of set things in motion. He would, he would uh, decide they were going to happen and kind of make them happen. I'm quoting from you. You say that his commitment was to making things happen, sometimes forcing them to happen, sometimes just putting random things together to see how it played out. And sometimes he was delighted by those things that didn't come off as well as those that did, which is just a real kind of incredible self-belief. Yes, it's the self-belief of someone who has, for whatever reason, decided that he's going to make his life a work of art. Mm. You know, sometimes you don't know what it was he actually did. Yeah. You know, obviously he was a great broadcaster and he's been called an impresario, an entrepreneur, um, a nightclub owner, but, but that, it, it was more elusive than that. And, and what, what he in fact did was create spaces and, and sort of opportunities for um, different kinds of people um, to thrive and, and benefit from his, uh, his support, encouragement, and occasionally his hostility it, it was challenging and in a way as motivational as when he loved you. You know, when he hated you, you still were motivated by him. And I think that was what was interesting about, about um, his, his occupation, if you, like, if you like. It wasn't necessarily what it seemed to be. Um, he, had a, he had a trajectory. He had a destination in mind. He obviously wanted to connect a new Manchester uh, with industrial... Manchester, the first modern city that it had been in the 19th century, and it, it had been decaying ever since to an extent. Its, its peak period was long over in the 60s and 70s. He loved Manchester. He loved its history. He wanted to regenerate its history and make sure that it continued uh, connect it with a, with a future. You know, I, um, you know, I've really admired the kind of Mancunian swagger or defiance because... Where I grew up, you know, the capital city dominated the culture. And if you weren't from Dublin, you were nowhere. And yeah. you know, when I came here, I, I thought that would be the same, where London was kind of where it was at, and they, the Cockneys would look down on everybody else who wasn't from London. And I think the Mancunians always gave me the impression that, like, fuck London. You know, they always had a kind of real great defiance. And I love the way you bring Anthony Burgess into it at the beginning of the book, because Burgess has that great quote that, um, Leaving London to go to Manchester is an exercise in condescension. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Wilson was very good in, in that sense of making us feel that Manchester was the centre of the universe. It wasn't in the margins of the world. He'd left, funnily enough. Uh, he went to Cambridge University and then he went to ITN uh, in, in London, the, uh, the nation's independent television news company. Um, when he came back, he was different from the rest of us. He had a different attitude because he'd been out there uh, and could have stayed out there and become quite triumphant as a, as a, a national treasure, as a broadcaster. But he decided that he would make Manchester the centre of the universe. And he was very angry about the idea that talent went away from Manchester. Um, he, he hated the drain of talent. The young people would go away to find the work they needed. And he wanted people to come into Manchester. That was um, a big part of his ambition, which eventually he succeeded in doing. By the end of the 1980s, 
you know, just about anybody who was going to become a student would want to go to Manchester and the universities there. So within 10, 12 years of, of this sort of plan and, and no plan, he, he, he managed to achieve it. I'm assuming he could be quite peppery and quite, you know, he had this kind of chippiness. But he also, you get the real sense that he had incredible charm. Yes, totally. I mean, charm was, 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 you know, one of his main characteristics, I guess, coming from his experience as a live broadcaster. He was, he was amazing on live television. Yeah. Um, could, you know, charm people who wouldn't necessarily understand the, the, the weirder side of him. He was um, one of the characters on Six O'Clock News that would tell you, you know, about traffic jams and, and whether it was going to rain tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he loved about um, the the punk scene that started mid seventies was that as as a broadcaster, suddenly he had something to cover, something that you know chimed with his own kind of um, radical instincts, if you like. Uh, and I think meeting McLaren for him was a big moment as well. Meeting Malcolm McLaren because it sort of inspired elements of his character that had probably gone dormant working in broadcasting. You know, the troublemaker, the ruffian. Uh, you know, it, it, it connected with his with his arrogant, you know, Mancunian instincts that Manchester was the best city in the world. And McLaren gave him gave him clues about how to operate. Yeah, uh, Tony, you know, liked to make things happen. And one of the things he could make happen, which is initially how he started in music, was putting new bands on television. So he's the first. You know, Elvis Costello's turning up on on his Tea Time show. Devo are turning up. Blondie are turning up. Uh, and that that led to his So It Goes show that the Sex Pistols turned up on. Uh, and it was television that was way ahead of its time because there was a sort of caution about the way that music groups were on television at the time. It was either hit music on top of the pops or it was grown up album music on the old grey whistle test. And Tony kind of developed a whole new dimension for, 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 for music on TV, which in effect is, is where the rest of the world slowly joined in. But he was just about the first to do it. Didn't look the part, never looked the part. Uh, yeah. He still had this sort of Graham Nash hair. Even during punk, you know, he never really got rid of that for quite a while. So he was a, he was an incongruous figure in many ways. He never really belonged in any scene that somehow he became part of because he was always on the outside. But that outsiderness, I think, was important because he still thought like a journalist. You know, yeah. he could take something and and turn it in, into a headline in a way that that others couldn't. He had, you know, in that sense, many different sort of um, gifts. You you cover this in the book, and you know John Savage has told me this, and Ben Kelly. But you know he he delighted in the fact that um, you know people shout Tony Wilson, you're a twat, and and you know he had this kind of to my eyes this winning characteristic, which was he really didn't give a shit. No, that helped a lot. Massively, he, he, he always felt that um, if he was being hated and, and, and harried and insulted, that he was, must have been doing something right. He was very good on that. In fact, in the last days of his life, one of the things that really worried him, he, he, I remember him saying that he knew that something must be very, very serious when people started to be nice to him. Mm. And he was a bit suspicious of that because he was used to the, he, he liked the argy-bargy. He liked the, the conflict. He liked um, rubbing people up the wrong way. I think he was always feeling that that was a way to set things in motion that as much as people must like what he was doing, there must be an equal amount of people, if not more, that don't like it vehemently because therefore it must be doing something. And, 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 and that, you know, element of, of, not nihilism, but, but certainly a kind of 
utter indifference to being loved in public, even though on the quiet he really loved being loved in public, I think was a help because sometimes he would do things that were utter failures, but it never, it never knocked him as yeah. such. I mean, he was distraught when So It Goes was greeted indifferently and never really went anywhere because that, I think, was his first attempt at doing something that was personal and he really believed in and he thought it was important. And I think probably in the long run, it, it, it sort of um, encouraged that indifference because he realised he mustn't take it too seriously because sometimes, you know, what he was going to do was so different, so unusual, it was inevitably not necessarily going to uh, immediately work. You know, it, it, it's, a big, it's a big story. It's a big book. There's also some great humour in it. And, um, you know, the, some parts of it actually were kind of laugh out loud. I mean, I don't know if people... I haven't, many of the reviews haven't really picked up on the kind of humor. I mean, I don't mean like absurd humor, but there's actually some really funny bits in it. You know, when he, when he tells Rose Marley, bless her, when she's taken over in the city, she's trying to kind of commercialize the operation and she's trying to do some data on who's attending and so on. And he goes, fuck all that. You just, just tell sponsors that all the people were great trainers. Sure is. I, I love that bit because to me that was a little, um, you know, Tony died 2007, so he didn't really see the world taken over by algorithms mm. and essentially um, immediate judgment of audience and, and, the, and the division of audience into buckets uh, and genres and age groups. And of course he could see it coming, was always resisting it. And it was absolutely opposite the way that people like Tony would work. The idea that you would do market research to get to an audience was was utterly, you know, a horror to him. Uh, even though deep down he understood that that's the way it ultimately worked, but he was always fighting that and always doing things on instinct and always uh, getting to his decisions by accident rather than trying to, you know, um, uh, read um, uh, some kind of document that that would give him advice about how to get to an audience. Uh, I, I, you know, the record business increasingly was 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 based on that kind of. Uh, sort of attitude and he, he, he was you know number one uh, opponent of it there's a great letter which he wrote to Dennis Bovell in 1979 where he asked him to produce something he goes I'll send you a hundred quid and the train fare and he says um, I still find business very silly essentially music should be a process of friendships anyway here's hoping you'd be interested do you think he um always had that kind of mentality. Do you think he kind of got seduced by business? He liked the idea, you know, in the 90s, he sort of, he got the, he liked the idea of being an executive, you know, <laughs> wandering through music business conferences with his bag looking important. But he played at it. It wasn't something that came natural to him. It was almost like every time he had an opportunity to make real money in the business, he, he would somehow, you know, um, fuck it up. Like th that moment in the late 80s where there was an opportunity for Factory to sell lots of records, dance records, and get to number one in the charts. He immediately, uh, with Alan Erasmus, opens up um, a classical division of Factory Records. You know, um, somebody's hired at the Hacienda, Mike Pickering, is at number one in the charts with a song called Ride on Time and, and yes. celebrating. And they're, and they're selling classical music to Russia. I think he, he was perverse in that sense, and he didn't want the orthodoxy of it all to crush his instincts. So um, they say he was a bad businessman. It's kind of interesting. And in, 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 in some sense, all the bankruptcies and collapses of his, of his businesses suggest that. But on the other hand, 
those businesses he set up, like Factory and the Hacienda, these nightclubs he run and bars, they've contributed to Manchester being a thriving city, which isn't easily quantifiable. I guess um, if the first act was his broadcasting career and then the second act was Factory, his kind of third act for me was the the Devolution Project and yes. getting independence for the Northwest, also including Liverpool, really. He was, you know, he wasn't oh, just, yeah. he wasn't myopic in that sense. And, no, um, no, no. and that's come to fruition. Yes. Yeah, and so I like it when people not from politics go into politics. You know, Norman Mailer went for the, the to be the mayor of New York in the late 60s. And yeah. his, um, his manifesto is, still reads brilliant, actually. It's very green. Um, it's very progressive. Yes. And, you know, we need these kind of characters more and more. Well, you're right. And the, and the manifesto Tony wrote for the evolution uh, when, he, when he was working on a, a project to regenerate certain ignored parts of Lancashire. The manifesto is a great thing. Yeah. Uh, and when some people, it was interesting because when he moved into worlds like that, the, the rock world didn't like it. They, they didn't understand it. And, and of course, the local councillors that he was suddenly preparing, you know, ideas for, they also didn't like it because they weren't used to characters like that. And of all the things he did as he tried to, you know, turn uh, an old a declining area of Lancashire into something postmodern, uh, you know, into, in, involving people like the designer Philip Stark and yeah. and great architects. You know, the one thing that I think really stands out is the fantastic um, manifesto he wrote, and then getting Peter Savile to design a flag. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the 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 input of those kind of ideas is what shows up actually how moribund the conventional politician is because they don't have that sensibility. Tony worked for years in a way as a, a sort of underground subversive politician where he would influence the local council and, and their attitude towards things. You know, I, I always remember in the 80s, the local council were wondering whether they should have a new shopping centre or something and competing with small towns in the north. And he was saying you should compete with Los Angeles and Sydney yeah. and Paris and Milan. You should go for the Olympics. And, 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 and the, these ambitious ideas that he had that inspired a lot of us in popular culture, he also sort of inspired a lot of the local politicians to think bigger and dream bigger. And think of Manchester as an important place that you would want to visit, not, not, not a, you know, some, you know, a provincial town that had had its, had its day. Yeah, well, his, Paul, his allotments, you know, the, the, the green, yes. the, you know, the Philippe Stark um, yes. allotment sheds. I, I'm just searching for the title for that. That was fantastic. That still is a great idea. And the fashion tower. And, and they were all yeah. great ideas. And, and in Europe, especially, those kind of things do happen. But there is, yeah, yeah, exactly. You've got Oslo and that's kind of commonplace, yeah. Absolutely. It's just, it's such a, it, 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 it exemplifies how also in an anti-intellectual country, in a way, a country that doesn't like those kind of ideas. Tony was very good at, at sort of making a lot of them happen. Uh, they don't usually happen, some of the ideas Tony had, because there is a suspicion of, of what they call pretension yeah. or ambition. And, and, and sometimes because of factoring, because of his music, that, that side of what he did is forgotten. I think it was one of the reasons that I really wanted to write a biography about, about this character that wasn't necessarily just a musical biography, but was the biography of a, of a, of a great, a kind of figure at a certain point in time, a character that doesn't really 
you know, exist anymore. The great impresarios, you know, I'm thinking the tradition of Andrew Lou Goldham and uh, yeah. McLaren and Peter Grant and, um, you know, Chris Blackwell, the people who are behind the scenes. And I suppose also as much as it's about Tony Wilson and Manchester and Factory and Granada Television, I did also want it to be uh, a, a kind of analysis or celebration or criticism, if you like, of, of those kind of figures that, that, that there is no room for them anymore because the world has changed so much. Do you feel, having done the book, that you've there's more to be written? And when you are you already thinking about the updated paperback version? And because it's kind of you're never going to fully pin him down. No, it, it, for me it was very much at one point in a really Tony Wilson factory sense the kind of book I would just keep writing and it would never be finished. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, all those things people say, but there was an element of things keeping appearing and materialising, and then history was changing shape years after he died, which was changing his particular shape within Manchester and in a wider sense, the music industry, broadcasting. So you got the sense of like, oh, you know, at what point am I going to be able to finish this? And I decided that what I would do was um, make sure that it was finished uh, at about the same time as the Factory Arts Centre, oddly enough. I thought that would be a nice coincidence. But of course, in the end, I beat them because theirs was delayed yeah. and over budget. And and just goes to show that these things often, the, the better th things, the more interesting things, you know, a deadline is the last thing you need. And of course, that was very Wilsonian and very Savile, you know, yeah, yeah. whenever it's ready. And this was definitely a case of whenever it's ready. Yeah, well, he, again, that was one of his, um, his credos, which is in the book as well, which is, um, you know, well, only when the work is ready, show it when yeah. it's ready. But it's true, and it's certainly right in this kind of book. You know, if it had come out five, six, seven years earlier, as a lot of people were screaming at me to do, mm. I don't think it would have been the right time in a funny sort of way, because I think they needed, they needed, oddly and sadly, to be the Manchester Arena bombing, because that changed the nature yeah. of Manchester again in a way that things do outside the control of an individual. And therefore, where does Wilson fit into that new world? You know, and, and to an extent he does, but it changes the dimensions and dynamic of Manchester. Manchester becomes something else because of it and the way that other bombings had changed the city before. And, and you have that balance between those horrific quirks of, of history and, and then someone like Wilson as a kind of psycho historian trying to bend the truth and reality of Manchester to his own will. And the two things are happening, you know, those two things are happening all at the same time. And so I was, I felt afterwards, yes, I think that was probably without me knowing it, there was a reason, not just that one, but, but, but why sometimes I didn't want to put it out at a certain point, because I just wanted to see as much as I could before I disappeared, what was happening to the history of Manchester and, and, and Wilson's place in it before I decided, you know, it was ready. From Manchester with Love by Paul Morley, published by Faber and Faber, is out now in hardcover. For the reading this episode, Paul Morley reads from his new book about Tony Wilson, From Manchester with Love. Fifty-one. 
leaving a fortune. Spoken words fly away, written words remain. And one more thing, Wilson says, looking straight into the camera, seriousness in his voice, a smile in his eyes or vice versa, not wanting to let go, never wanting to stop talking, never wanting the biography, the life to end. In 1977, the bad good Catholic boy is on some very attractive Granada assignment, meeting the smiling, embracing Archbishop of Sao Paulo, the unstoppable, courageous Paolo of Aristo Arns, one time Cardinal of the People, champion of the re-democratisation of Brazil in 1974, a symbol of human rights, a fan of Cuba's Castro, who ran the Catholic Church in South America on Marxist principles. Arns tells Wilson that being rich in itself is a sin, but that in the achievement of revolution there were signs of the kingdom of God, which is going to have a big influence on Wilson's approach to pop culture and living a life. They talk about Castro and how he said that any kind of revolution is not a bed of roses. It is a struggle between the future and the past. That Jackie Collins rendition of the well-intentioned post-hippie entrepreneur Virgin's Richard Branson once told Wilson he'd never make any money, as if that could be the only possible reason for his existence. He did too many things. He needed focus. He should concentrate on one thing, the single route to a fortune. Wilson preferred the bishop's message. Creative revolution to balance the insanity of history, leading to a very different kind of fortune. Wilson was focused on himself, on his mission, on raiding knowledge, on the local waifs and strays and familiar faces he loved and supported, always best without a script, revelling in the fact that people either loved him or hated him, because he was magnificent and maddening, stamping his mind on Manchester, fully understanding how nothing improves the reputation of someone in his position more than a premature death. Someone who once said that when he died, if he could come back as anyone, he would come back as himself, because he kind of enjoyed being Tony Wilson. To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hattenbeard Press and Dublab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Bame. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dublab for early encouragement and support and to file-sharing company WeTransfer for helping sponsor this experiment in audio storytelling. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.